This week I was in the church office and I was looking for something, and I came across this notebook. In fact, I pulled some stuff out to throw away and took it to be shredded. But there was this notebook, and I use notebooks to, to write sermon notes on, so I stuck it in my desk. And, and uh, Monday mor- or Tuesday morning when I was studying, I pulled it out because I was going to use it for sermon notes. And I looked in it and, and saw that it was from one of our youth that had come to church here several years ago. Uh, she had used it to write sermon notes and uh, questions for a pastor and questions for a youth pastor and how she loved Jesus and some boy. But anyway, she was one of our kids that started coming as a child and came all a long time during our youth time, very faithful and regular, went on mission trips. And one Sunday she stopped coming, found out she had gone to another church, and then she stopped coming altogether. And now she's kind of followed in the footsteps of her mom, a good person, but is a long way from the church. Her story could be many stories, the story of many people, people that uh, have been faithful in the church, and then they, they've, they've left, left the church, left a relationship with the Lord. That was the story of the church at, at Ephesus. A church that was strong, a church that was faithful, but a church that Jesus said in our text had fallen away from the Lord. They'd left their first love. So let's read our text this morning. Let's stand in honor of God's Word. Revelation chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And who walks among the seven golden lampstands? I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and you cannot tolerate evil people. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be liars. I know that you persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I hate also hate. Let anyone who has ears to listen, excuse me, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, thank you for your word. Speak, Father, through me today. And as you speak and talk to people's hearts, may they respond to your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. During the month of January, I've I've tried to remind you first of our priorities as we looked at the seven purposes or the five purposes of our church. I've tried to encourage you in your prayer life last week as as we look at the Caleb prayer for the nations. And this week, I want to help us to remain faithful uh, in our personal life and as well as in our life in the church. Now, next week, I'm going to be preaching about the plight of the lost. And then the last week in January, I'm going to be preaching um, the Beatitudes. Hopefully, I can get through all of them on on that one Sunday. And then the next uh, month of February, I'm going to start in... Uh, a series called The Cross of Christ. So I encourage you to pray for me and pray for all your pastors. We need your prayers. 
Um, as one of my pastors used to say, we need your prayers and you need the practice. <laughs> anyway, as I was doing study for the research on this, I came across uh, the following statements on, on a website called earlychurchhistory.org. And they wrote, conversion to Christ changes individuals. That's true. I know when I received Christ, my life was changed, and I'm sure you could say the same thing. And then he writes, mass conversion to Christ change, excuse me, mass conversions to Christ change a culture. And that's what I'm praying for in our nation, that we have uh, just a, another great awakening that, like we've not had for over 100 years. And then he wrote about this passage, an entire change in pagan culture is what was at stake in Ephesus. And that's what happened in Ephesus when Paul took the gospel. The word Ephesus means desirable, and it was a desirable place to live. It was a good city. In the ancient world, Ephesus was the center of, of travel and commerce. It was situated on the Aegean Sea right there at the, where the Castor River uh, exits, and so it was a great harbor. And people came from all over the region to, to visit uh, there were three major roads that left Ephesus, one that went north, excuse me, one that went east towards Babylon through Laodicea, another that went north to Smyrna, and then a south to, excuse me, another that went south through the Meander Valley uh, and continued on to Colossae. Now, Paul first went to Ephesus about 52 AD in his first missionary journey. He stopped there, he preached in the synagogue, and planted a church. He was just there a short time, and he said, if God wills, I'll return. Well, God did. And Paul returned on his second missionary journey, uh, excuse me, on his third missionary journey, uh, about two years later. And according to Acts 19, he spent between two and three years in Ephesus. And it was during this time that Paul was in Ephesus that a lot of the churches of the region were reached, whether it was Paul that went out there himself or he sent people from the church. But a lot of those churches, in fact, all the churches you read of in Revelation after the book of Exodus probably were reached during the time Paul was there. While in Ephesus and teaching in, in the school of Tyrannus, uh, first in the synagogue, then the school of Tyrannus, uh, he taught the basics of the Christian faith. And he also addressed false doctrines and pagan practices. And, and he was so successful that it says in the book of Acts in chapter 19 that all those people that pract formerly practiced uh, black magic and witchcraft bought, brought their books and burned them. Talk about a change of culture. Now, Ephesus was the home of of the Temple of Diana. It was a, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, also called the Temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. And the, the artisans of the city would make their crafts and sell them to all the visitors that came. But so many people were reached by the gospel that the Silversmith Guild had almost a riot because they weren't making any money off these, these little, little uh, statues that they made. Talk about changing culture. Well, because of the riot and the pressure, Paul had to leave Ephesus. But a few months later, he, he met with the Ephesian church leaders on, on the island of Miletus as he was on his way back to Jerusalem for the last time, by the way. And they realized this was the last time that they'd see Paul, and, and they wept and embraced. And, and Paul uh, shared with them again, and you can read that in Acts chapter 19, uh, Luke's written that account, uh, and you can see from what Luke wrote that the church 
the believers in the church had matured, and they had grown in their faith, and they were strong, a strong and alive church. Well, you know, Paul went to Jerusalem, and then he was sent to Rome in prison. Um, while there, Paul wrote a letter back to the church. And apparently he had visitors from Ephesus because he commended them on their faith and love. And, and as you read the, through the book of Ephesus, you get the idea that this is a strong church. It's a faithful church. It was one that was busy and active in sharing the gospel. But just a few years later, Paul wrote back with a different message because there were problems in the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote, I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrines or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. So problems are starting to happen in the church at Ephesus. Tradition tells us that John, the apostle, went to Ephesus and he lived there and that's where he, he took the mother of Jesus and took care of her. And while he's there, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now John was a, an active evangelist. He was, they tried to quiet him down. In fact, they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil. They weren't successful. And so they thought, we'll put him in an out-of-the-way place like the Isle of Patmos. He'll not be able to touch anybody there except the whole world, when he wrote the book of Revelation. Um, anyway, dear, you read from, from 1st, 2nd, 3rd John that some of the problems there uh, that were there, still there in the church at Ephesus, um, false teachers had arisen in the church who, who claimed to have a deeper knowledge of God. Uh, they claimed to have this, say that the secrets of knowing God, but they denied bodily incarnation of Christ. They denied that Jesus is God, and they taught a lot of other heretical teachings, and, and their whole idea was, was you, you mix a little bit of the church with a little bit of pagan culture, and it'll make it more acceptable. Listen, church. Just as it didn't work in Ephesus, the church of today cannot wed the world and its philosophies with the gospel with the Word of God, and have a wholesome Christianity. It doesn't work. It didn't work then, and it didn't work now. We have the, the book we need. And our lives, our Christian lives, we need to base upon this book and this book alone. Now, there are a lot of good commentaries, a lot of good Christian books out there, and as long as they agree with this book, I say amen wholeheartedly if it'll help, help you grow in your faith. But anywhere they disagree with this book, they're wrong. They're wrong because this is truth. This is the standard. Um, so now we come to our text. This is kind of just a background so we'll know where we're at. This is our text. And it begins, the angel of the church in Ephesus. Well, we know that the angel is the pastor of the church, the messenger of the church. So the Lord is addressing the pastor. Now, we don't know who was the pastor at that time. The church had had some great leaders. Of course, they had the Apostle Paul that started the church. Uh, his protege, Timmy, pastor, Timothy, pastored the church. Uh, the Apostle John was there for a time. His co-workers were Aquila and Priscilla, and they, 
They uh, mentored Apollos. All these were in that church there. By the way, Apollos may have written the book of Hebrews. Some Bible scholars think he did. But anyway, uh, these were the pastors that were there. We don't know who was there at the time, though. And then he says, uh, the angel of the church who walks, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden candlesticks, Seven stars and seven golden candlesticks. Well, if you read the Revelation book long enough, you'll, it explains itself. So in chapter 1, verse 20, if you look back there just a few verses, it says, The seven stars that Christ is holding in his hand are the angels or messengers of the church. And the seven lampstands that he walks among are the seven churches. So what do we get out of this? The one who holds the pastors in his hands. The one who is in the midst of the church. The one who knowing, knowing, knows what go, is going on in the church. He's the one that's bringing a message. Isn't that comforting to know that, that Christ holds your pastor in his hand? It's comforting to me. And isn't it comforting to know that Christ is here in our midst? That he's not outside, hopefully. He's not outside the church. He's in our midst. And we're here, we can hear him and listen to him. Well, they knew what was going on in this church at Ephesus. He says, I know your works. His knowledge of the word, uh, of their works is complete. That's what that word know means. Uh, it means to see perceptively. Uh, so every ministry that you do, every act that you carry out for Christ, uh, every person you influence for the Lord, Christ sees it. Every sin he sees as well, as we'll see later in this passage. So Christ sees what's going on in our lives. So what did Christ see in Ephesus? Well, it was a busy and an active church. Jesus said, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. Uh, they were doing what Jesus sent the church to do. Now, if you look, examine the Greek words, you know, I love the to go look at the Greek words and see what they mean, see what they meant then to, to apply it to us now. So the word works means that they worked hard. Uh, the word translated labor means they toiled until they were exhausted. It was a wearious, wearisome effort was the, the word. They worked hard. The word endurance or patience means that they bore up under the circumstances and they didn't quit. Their labor was intensive but they never stopped doing what they'd been called to do. That word endurance or patience is associated with hope. They worked with hope. And recruit, excuse me, refers to the quality of a person who doesn't surrender or doesn't quit because of their character, because of what their relationship with the Lord. It doesn't succumb to, to trials. That's what he said about the church. That's the kind of works we want to have here at Lynn Lane Baptist Church. It's what we want to be, a hardworking church. Labors for Christ until we're exhausted because we've given our all for Jesus. And we have a hope in Christ that pushes us on, that won't let us stop. Then Paul said, they wouldn't tolerate evil people. That word evil means bad, worthless, wicked, evil in themselves, and get others in trouble just as well. I was one of those, unfortunately, when I was younger. Christ can transform. But these people weren't interested in transformation. What Jesus said about them, about the church, was they wouldn't put up with people of bad character. It doesn't mean they wouldn't reach out to them. 
Doesn't reach that they didn't try to reach them for Christ, but they wouldn't, the church wouldn't allow them to be part of the leadership. Wouldn't allow them to ruin the fellowship of the church. They wouldn't tolerate evil people. Another thing, they tested those who called themselves apostles. The Greek word is pseudo or fake teachers. How did they know they were fake? Well, they looked at the real thing. They looked at the Word of God, and they looked at what the Word of God said, and when it didn't match up with what they taught, they said, you guys can't teach anymore because you're not teaching what, what God says. Now, they didn't have the Bible like we have, but they had Paul's writings. They had the Old Testament writings. They, had, they may have had the Gospel by this time, the Gospel of, of Mark by this time. Jesus said they called them what they were, liars. And in verse 3, which says, I know that you persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. That word, my name, says, I know you did it for me. It's emphatic. You didn't quit even when it was exhausting. And then later on in the passage, it says, and you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Who are they? Well, there are two strands of believers. One say that they were a heretical group that followed a Nicholas, which could be one of the seven. We don't know. That's just something. But if you look at what the word Nicolaitans means, you take it apart. The part Nico means conqueror or ruler. And the last part we get the word laity from. So they're the ruler of laity or the conqueror of laity, and what they espoused was a division between the clergy and the laity. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. There is no two classes of members here. There is not the pastors and the church. It's all equal. They didn't allow their fellowship to be disrupted by these kind of people. So, if you look at the church, you look at the things Jesus had said about the church, you'd say, that's a great church. Isn't that the kind of church that we want to be? We're hardworking. We reject evil. We know the scriptures. Uh, we reject false teachings and false teachers. Uh, we want to be a church that endures hardship for Christ's sake. Isn't that the kind of church we want to be? I'd say Amen. We want to be a church that brings Christ's glory because of our ministry. Yet Jesus said this church was lacking. They'd abandoned their first love, their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I got to thinking about that later. Maybe the reason the work was so wearisome was because they didn't do it with joy and love. They did it because they felt like they had to. I don't know. That's just what, what my impression was as I was thinking about that yesterday. It's easy to look at the Ephesians church and say, how could they? Just as we sometimes look at folks in their, who've, who've walked away from the Christian life and say, how do they do that? And we judge them. Are they wrong? Yeah, they are wrong. Are we the right accuser? Probably not. I got thinking about these words of, of Jesus in Matthew 7. You might want to turn there real quick. Mark that in your Bible. Underline it several times. Do not judge so you won't be judged. I thought that was good advice. 
For you'll be judged by the same standard by which you judge others, and you'll be measured by the same measure you use. Isn't it common that we judge others, but we have a different standard for us? Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. That's a theological word, by the way. Did you know that? Uh Uh-uh. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look? There's a beam of wood in your eye. And that word beam doesn't mean a little bitty piece. It means a beam. Jesus used hyperbole for a purpose. Because he calls them hypocrite. First, deal with your own problems. Take the beam out of wood out of your eye. Then you'll see clearly. Oh, come on. I've lost it. You'll see clearly to take it out of, out of your own eye. Hang on just a second. I hate it when that happens. I'm almost there. Okay. Jesus' word to the church was to the church. But what is the church made up of? Not wood and mortar and brick and carpet and pews. We call this our church, but it's not really. Because you're the church. So who did Jesus say had left their first love? the people. So we all need to examine ourselves. So ask yourself right now, how is my love for the Lord? Is it like it was at the first? I read this somewhere, and I wrote it down. The supreme characteristic of our lives should be our love for the Lord. Do you agree? Do you spend time with the Lord because you want to? Or because somebody told you in a sermon or a Sunday school class, you really need to read your Bible every day? You should, but you'd want to. Love desires time. Obligation spends little time or even resentful time, not the best time. Jesus challenged his disciples to make their love for him the priority of their life. In in Matthew 10, Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. I love my mom and dad. My dad's gone. My mom's still going. She missed the sermon last week because she was in the hospital having a heart attack, but she's fine now. She should be here this morning watching. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Oh, I love my kids. I love my kids. I'd lay down my life for my kids. But Jesus said, if you love your kids more than you love him, you're not worthy of him. And then he says, he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And then in John 14, Jesus said, those that that love him are the ones that will obey him. Because that's what we do for love. And somehow this church in Ephesus, there on the Aegean Sea where the Castor River enters in, right there, that church, that great church, somehow had stopped loving the Lord in first place. So what is that? first love anyway what makes it so special 
Well, first love is a, is a fervent love. It's emotional. It moves the heart. It causes the, the, thrill to, the soul to thrill. It's, it, it, it's something you feel inside that you can't stop. It's alive. It's vibrant. Let me tell you a secret. I still remember the first time I saw Sandy. I remember where it was. She was coming through a door at school in the university center. And I saw her. My heart went pit-a-pat. What was your love like for Christ when you first loved him? Do you still have that fervent love? Well, not only is it fervent, it's extravagant. That first love makes you spend money you don't have. We had lots of dates where we went out to the Town Talk Cafe. You could get breakfast with coffee for $1.15. Last of the big time spenders, let me tell you. But it makes you do those things that, that you wouldn't have done without that love. It's emotional. It moves your heart. It makes you do those things you, you can't do. I, how many of y'all have heard of T. Boone Pickens? I know all of you fans have. He's a man who loved extravagantly and spent millions of dollars on the object of his affection. That was OSU, and I don't know why, but anyway, that's what he spent it on. First love's extravagant. That church at Ephesus was once a strong love, but over time the, the, the things changed. And now a whole generation had passed from the time when Paul preached. And they discovered you could keep doing the things you did without the love. You know, we see that in Scripture. Uh, in Luke 15, that's the, the story of the prodigal son, in case you didn't know. Prodigal son... The elder brother worked all those years for his father without loving his father. Didn't have a relationship with him. And when the brother came back, what did he do? He got mad, sulked and pouted and went away. He didn't have love. But on the other hand, we see Jacob who, loved, who worked 14 years and it seemed like just a day for his wife, Rachel. Listen, it's possible to labor without love. Let me prove it to you. How many of you hate your jobs, but you go every day? But it's impossible to love without labor. My prayer is that we don't serve the Lord out of a sense of duty. Jesus told him, Remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. I wonder if there's a reason it's got that word repent in there twice. Hmm. If you're, if you're an English major, you would know that if something's in there twice, it's for emphasis. Okay? Just, just a clue. Now, we're studying Greek in, in the Bible, so don't worry about it. It's not going to be on the test. Jesus said, remember how far you've fallen. That, that word is in the present tense in the Greek that means to remember and keep on remembering. Don't just, oh yeah, and go on. Remember and keep on remembering. Keep it before you. Keep remembering what it was like when you first fell in love with the Lord. 
and keep on doing, keep on reflecting on that love. That word fallen, keep on remembering from where you fall, that means to lose one's part or interest. Their first love was one they lost. They'd lost their interest in serving Christ. Now let me say something, and I want you to get it. I want you to hear it. Leaving their first love or leaving our first love is sin. It's sin. It's not a character flaw. It's not a lapse. It's sin. So Christ says, remember from where you've, come, you've been and repent. That word repent is also in the present tense of the Greek, which means it's something you keep on doing. To repent means to be regretful and sorrowful accompanied by a change. The picture of repentance is a soldier marking one, marching one way and turning around and marching the other. To march towards sin and turn away from it. Evangelist Stephen Olford wrote, Revival can never come without an exposure of and a judgment on sin. Christ exposed their sin and promised judgment if they didn't repent. Then Olford said something else. We cannot expect revival if we're not prepared to humble ourselves under his judgment on every appearance of sin. Paul says, remember from where you've fallen, repent, because the sin's been pointed out. Repent, turn it away from it, and then repeat. Do the works you did at first. That word do is an imperative. It's a command. And the language that John uses implies start doing again what you're no longer doing. You stopped. In the past, you stopped. Now do it. Do it again. Repeat what you had done before. But this time out of love. How do you get back on track? Retired preaching professor uh, Fred Craddock told a story about a wealthy man who, who went to his, his, his pastor and he said, I've got $50,000 to give to the church. Now, this wasn't an ordinary pastor because the pastor said, okay, what I want you to do is go change it for quarters and dollar bills and give it out in ministry, 50 cents or a dollar at a time. Different time, Craddock preached, uh, taught 20, 30 years ago. Give it out a little at a time. And the guy said, but that'll take the rest of my life. He said, that's what it is. That's what I mean. That's what it means to love the Lord and serve the Lord with all your heart. So is there a need for a return to love at our church? Is there a need for you to return to your love for the Lord in your own life? Here's some questions that I ask. Myself sometimes, and I want to ask you as well. Has attendance in Bible study and worship become sporadic? When you never used to miss? Is this a time, excuse me, is this a sign of changed priorities? And as I've looked at our ministries, you know, there's only a few that are involved in pray and go. Uh, by the way, I wish we were going out today. It's going to be 67 degrees, but we'll start again February, first Sunday in February. But only a few are involved. Is this a, a, a sign that 
of indifference? Because we have so many ministries that you say, well, Pastor Keith, what's the list? We need volunteers in the children's department. Uh, our insurance company really recommends that we ought to have at least two people in every class. We need to. Every Sunday school class, every youth Sunday school class, every children's church, every nursery. Um, those are just some of the things. We don't use our baptistry like we used like I would like us to see it use it. I'm, I'm glad we used it today. I wish that we could leave it full all the time because we're having to use it all the time. I wish that our gas bill, yeah, it is a gas heater. I wish that our gas bill was, was sky high because we're having to keep that thing warm in the wintertime because people were coming all the time to be baptized. But we don't. And I sometimes wonder, is that because people don't care enough to tell others about Jesus? Stephen Olford wrote in Heart Cry for Revival, there is such, excuse me, there is such an attitude in our world of, I don't care, and I fear that it's crept into the church. How can we repeat those first works that we did in the love of Christ? Well, first admit it's sin, confess it, and repent of it. Tell the Lord, I don't love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I want to. Confess you don't love your neighbor as yourself. Admit it to yourself and to God, and sometimes it's a good idea to admit it to somebody else so they can be praying with you and they can be an accountability partner. You may need to set new priorities because you're distracted by too many things. Now, distractions are not always bad things. Sometimes there's things that keep us from doing the best things. Get those things out of your life that keep you from your first love. The second thing is to surrender anew to Christ. Surrender means that you bow before someone and yield to their control. Uh, Dr. Bill Bright wrote in the Four Spiritual Laws, it's allowing God His rightful place sitting on the throne of your heart and allowing Him to lead you as you make your decisions. And it's also making a commitment to spiritual disciplines that will help you to grow in Christ. Make a commitment to return to personal Bible study because you want to know the Lord more, not just because I said so. Make a commitment to learn to return to a life of prayer. As I said last week, I hope your prayer is more than just, just uh, panic praying or crisis praying, but it's a life of visiting with the Lord. Make a commitment to worship Jesus every day. Someone said, worshiping Jesus is loving God back. Do that. It starts here. It starts now. But Christ said to the church, if you don't do that, I'm going to remove your candlestick. I'm going to take away your church. I'm going to take away your influence. I may close the building. I may destroy the building. But Christ was serious. Christ was serious with this church. We know up until the 4th century that the church at Ephesus existed. But it was part of, we're not, some Bible scholars say, well, it's, it's part of the Catholic church. Some people say, well, it's part of the church movement of the day. I don't know. It still existed four centuries later. Did they take care of the problem? I'm sure they had to for a while anyway. You can't keep a door open four centuries without doing some things right.
So we come to the time of invitation. Where are you in your relationship with the Lord? Do you need to return to your first love? Does your obedience demonstrate that you love the Lord supremely? Mom, don't listen to this. I used to do things that my mom and dad didn't know. If I could sneak, I could do what I wanted to do instead of what I was supposed to do. Well, you can't hide it from God, but you can hide it from each other. What's your, your obedience demonstrate? Do you love the Lord more than you love your family? More than your father, mother, brothers, sisters, children, grandchildren, your spouse? More than life itself? You know, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll take up your cross and follow me. That doesn't mean, uh, to take up a cross doesn't mean to take up a cause. It means to be willing to die for Christ. Will you do that? If not, remember. If you're not there, remember, repent, and repeat. Return to Christ now. Maybe you're listening and you've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. Do you need to accept Jesus right now? Do you need to say, I can't return to a first love because I don't have a first love? I encourage you to do that today. Maybe you received Christ, but you never grew in Christ. Maybe you need to make a commitment of following Jesus. Maybe you need some help in your Christian walk. Come and tell me, I'd like to grow in Jesus, and we'll get you some help.